scriptural reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and his name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your way. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when he said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you today. I'm thankful that you're here. I want to join in welcoming you. If you uh, have your Bible open to 1 Samuel chapter 8, you may want to leave it there. We will uh, be in that chapter with part of our study this morning. Um, I'm thankful for this time of year, and I'm thankful for you. Love this church family. Hope that you've got a great week planned. I do want to begin with one word of an apology. I was sitting down here on the front row last Sunday evening, and I don't know what causes us to remember certain things at certain times, but last week I realized uh, it said to go to Version for lesson notes out there online, and there were no lesson notes online because... It was just an epic fail by me. I dropped the ball and didn't create any. And so if you were looking for those last week, they were not there and it's my fault. So I apologize for that. There should be lesson notes out there today if you prefer to get your notes that way. In chapter 10 of the story, there is a lot going on and it covers quite a bit of ground. And so uh, if you think back and, and to what you've read this week, chapter 10 introduces us to Hannah. Uh, Hannah who has no children and Hannah pleads for a son and we talked about her as a mother back on Mother's Day. You may remember that, but she says, if you'll give me a son, I'll devote him back to you. And so God blesses her with Samuel and we get Samuel's entire life pretty much in uh, the story this week. And so Samuel is called as a prophet at at a very young age and as he begins his work, Israel's not really focused on God. In fact, they they try to go into battle and they're defeated by the Philistines. And you may remember chapter 4 of 1 Samuel where they're asking good questions. Why did God allow us to... Why did God defeat us today? It's not about the Philistines. But they get the wrong answer. And they say, well, it was about the fact that we didn't take the ark with us into battle. And so they try that and they're defeated again. And they just don't get it. And after the ark is captured and then finally returned, it sits gathering dust for 20 years at kiriath Jerem, And finally, the heart is right of the people for Samuel to be able to lead a revival. But by the time you get to chapter 8, as was just read, Samuel is old now. And it's time for there to be a transition. And so Samuel, uh, he appoints his sons as judges. But there's a problem there. And, uh, and as was read, the, the elders of Israel, they rebel against that because his sons are corrupt. They, they're not pure. And so 
the rejection's okay, but the solution really isn't. The solution from uh, the people is, we're ready for a king now. And this isn't new to God. God had said all the way back in Deuteronomy 17, He said there is going to be the day when the people begin to ask for a king. It's going to happen. And so it's talked about in Deuteronomy 17. Well, it happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And not surprisingly, Samuel is angry. And we might have been angry also. Think about this first. Your children are under attack. And and typically we get a little defensive if somebody attacks our kids. And so the people are saying, your sons are corrupt. And even when it's true, sometimes it makes us mad. And so he's angry about that, probably. He's angry about the fact that they're rejecting leadership and wanting a king that God really hasn't authorized for this point in time. And so God explains to Samuel, well, listen, this is really about me. This is really about they're rejecting me as God. They're not really rejecting you. And so the next thing you get from Samuel is him trying to explain what having a king is going to mean. You know, you're thinking about some of the upsides and some of the things that you like about the idea of having a king, but when you have a king, you're going to have taxes because he's going to need your money. And he's going to take some of your people to serve him. And there are going to be some costs associated with having a king. But in the end, even after the explanation, even after all the caution about, do you really want a king, when you get to verse 19 of 1 Samuel 8... Again, the people are adamant, and you get more at the core of what they're really after. Verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They're looking around... And they want to be just like everyone else. And as we start thinking about chapter 8, and this is this whole give us a king thing, that's what we want to think about this morning. It really begs the question, I wonder what they're seeing as they look at all of those other nations. As, you know, what is it as they look at the other nations that is so attractive to them at this point? You know, was it that the other nations seem to be winning and seem to be having some success? You know, why would they want to set themselves up to look like the people that God had told them to drive out, that God had told them to conquer? Why would they want to look that way? And they're obviously not thinking about what they already have and who they are as God's chosen people. And as one author said, what you really have here, it's a fundamental rejection and it's a fundamental dissatisfaction with who they are as the people of God. As I thought about this, I tried to think in terms of something that we kind of identify with today. And it's not really political change because typically as we have a change in political leadership, it's not because we want to look like other nations. But I wonder if there might be another comparison that does work pretty well. I think in terms of maybe when one of our favorite sports teams is looking for a new coach. 
When a big-time athletic program needs a new coach, there's several things that go into that. Now, we love the drama, and we love to follow the news, and we love to see what names are in the mix. And in the end, we want somebody that's going to win, but we also really, you know, we like it when it's a name. We like it when it's somebody where when we can talk about our team, we can now talk about who our coach is because there's something about having the right coach and knowing that that guy is going to lead our team into battle. To me, that kind of compares with Israel. You know, the idea that we need a visible leader. We need a guy that when we go out to battle, everybody can see him and he's going to have on the robes and he's going to rally the troops. And when we go out, it'll be behind this guy. Because that's what the other nations had. And they seem to be stronger than us right now. See, in a sense, Israel's demand for a king... It brings us to an age-old question, and it's one of those questions that in every generation we've got to think in terms of it. It applies to us in 2015. When you get to the New Testament, God kind of brings us to the same crossroads, and we have to think about who we're going to serve. I think about Romans 12. Because the question for us today, we sing, He's my King. But the question that God asks us is, will I conform to the world or will I be transformed by allowing God to renew my mind? Will I allow myself and will I allow my life to be shaped according to what the world has defined as successful and according to what the world has defined as acceptable? Or will I be transformed into what God wants me to be and what He's called me to be and into what He's already told me that I am as His child, even when that may stand in sharp contrast to what the world is doing? Think about Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We read these verses frequently, and I wonder sometimes if we lose sight of the fact that these verses, they bring us to a choice, they bring us to a place where the the pathways fork, and we've got to make a decision. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Uh, It's your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Think about some of the secular definitions related to the word or the term conform or conforming. When you start thinking about that word, you get definitions like this. To be similar to or the same as something. To obey or agree with something. To do what other people do. To behave in a way that is accepted by most people. Romans 12 verse 2 from the New Century, it says, Do not be shaped by the world. Now to be fair, as we do life, there is a positive side to conformity. We learn a volume of basic life stuff through looking at how things are done and then conforming our practice to whatever's already proven to be successful. That's one of the ways when young people change maybe from a, an elementary school to a middle school or a middle school to a high school as, as young people change schools. Now the new school is going to tell them about how, how here's what you need to do in our school, but young people look around 
and they see the people who are older than they are, and you begin to see how they're getting things accomplished at school, and you kind of fall in and conform with what the older folks are already doing, and it helps you get along in your new school. Same thing happens if we change jobs. The new company, they're going to have an orientation and they're going to tell us about the company and some of the rules of the road, but but the way we're going to learn day to day how to get things done in our new company, we're going to learn from the people that are already there and conform to the practice that already works. So there is a positive side. We, We do a lot of conforming when it comes to deciding what we're going to wear. Can you imagine being so powerful, one of these designer guys where when you go into your studio, your design factory, whatever it is you work in, you are so powerful that whatever you go in and create, you are going to decide what's in style, what's in fashion. Can you imagine having that kind of power? But there's some guys and girls that have that kind of power today. Ever found yourself wearing something that's in style today? But maybe the first time you saw it in a store, you, you looked at it and you're like, I don't know about that. I, that doesn't, that's not really appealing to me. But then later on, after everybody had one, you went and got yours because that's in style now. That happens. Or can you remember something that was in style but is now deemed to be hideous? Yeah, sometimes we clean out the closet at that point. You may be going to attend a Christmas party this year where you're supposed to wear a tacky Christmas sweater. Where do you get that tacky Christmas sweater from? A lot of times you don't have to go buy it, do you? You go to the closet and you've got something in there that years ago it was high fashion, but today it's tacky because it's no longer in style. And so most of our fashion conformity, it's kind of intriguing and it can be funny and a lot of it's very harmless. Some of you may already be ahead of me a little bit though and you're thinking, but wait a minute, some of our conformity regarding what we wear, some of it's not always a good thing and you'd be right. Sometimes as we conform, there's a price to pay, there's a negative side and it's not just related to what we wear. Before what we wear, I tried to think in terms of maybe one that's... um, kind of a negative fashion trend that's already run its course and I thought if I use that it might be less offensive because when I illustrate I don't want to offend anybody but you may remember a number of years ago an interesting thing happened with sweatpants and women's sweatpants not men's but the 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 manufacturers the designers they began putting words across the rear end of the sweatpants do you remember that Okay, well this, if any male will be honest with you, the male will tell you that this was not helpful. Yeah, and I can hear that it's it's not helpful because now eyes are being drawn to a place where guys are already probably working kind of hard to remove their eyes from. And this wasn't one where, you know, people are wearing this and getting these and saying, now this is really going to make it hard on the guys to do what's right. But it's one of those areas where conforming wasn't necessarily helpful. You think about our country's most recent financial crisis, this thing that we've been through in the last years. Um, The collapse was very severe, and it wasn't just about banking institutions. It wasn't just about Wall Street. One of the things that made it so severe for so many people is that so many folks in our country were conforming to a bad model of, of, of financial behavior. 
The severity was fueled by too many people conforming to a lifestyle of debt and a lifestyle of being overextended and a lifestyle of living kind of at a higher level than they really should have been trying to live at. And see, when I'm living out on the edge and then the edge crumbles away beneath me, I'm in big trouble. Uh, You know, when I'm living without any margin and then I need some margin, uh, I've got a real problem on my hands. And so acceptable by according to the world standards, even, you know, it's not always a safe way to, to, to go. And as I think about that and as I think about us coming out of that, I'm thankful today that the experts are now telling us about a generation of young adults who are much less concerned with stuff and are seemingly more concerned with living lives of substance and of purpose And I love that because I think that bodes well both for the physical and the spiritual. The other thing that I want to mention, you know, conformance isn't always helpful and it's not always safe. The other one that I'll mention, when we begin to embrace a look-like-the-world mindset, it may cause me to accept things without running them through the appropriate filters. Pros, cons, right, wrong. Would a Christian embrace this? Remember a number of years ago we pulled in at the mall. This is when we lived in Atlanta and we'd parked pretty good ways from uh, the buildings and you know the malls are big and the parking lots are full. And as we're about to get out of our car, we kind of paused because we had kind of a show to watch. This young lady got out of her car and before she left her car to head toward the mall she began to dramatically change her appearance to something that was much more acceptable in the time. And it was one of those where the story is very clear without her having to tell it. There was a standard that she needed to meet to get out of her house for her parents to let her out the door. There was a standard she had to meet. But instead of running her decision through the filter of children obey your parents and the Lord because this is right, there was another way she wanted to look before she went in the mall. There are filters we need to run our decisions through. And, and even when we think about ourselves as church family, sometimes our lack of running ideas through the appropriate filters and wanting to be like the world, sometimes it makes it more difficult for our shepherds as they lead us. You know, sometimes we'll see something going on in the religious world and it looks exciting and it looks new and it looks like it might be effective. And so we'll begin to think in terms of why can't we do that here? And it might be something that we ought to be doing here. It might be something that's biblical and that would help us reach more people and it might be everything that we ever thought of in a great idea but it also might be one that when we run it through the filter of does it match up with what God says is right or God says is wrong we can't find authority for it and so we've got to be careful about what we lobby for the other side of that though is becoming stagnant being bound in Tradition, not doctrine, where our tradition has always been this or our tradition has always been that. And in 2015, our tradition doesn't allow us to reach people the way we need to. And conforming to an outdated tradition can be as harmful to us as trying to go beyond what the Bible says is good. I had a very encouraging conversation uh, with a young preacher just this past week and, and his 
congregation, the, the, the elders, they made a decision to make a minor adjustment to their Sunday night worship. And because of the adjustment they've made, uh, attendance is up and involvement has increased. And they're still accomplishing... You see, the elders believe that it's important to come together and spend time together and worship and grow and fellowship. And they're still accomplishing all of those things. And I love success stories like that. But we've got to remember as we evaluate our lives spiritually, acceptable according to the world standard isn't always biblical. In chapter 10 of the story, Saul is going to become the king. And he's going to have the look. He's going to be the guy that if you went out and picked him out of the crowd, he's the one that you'd want to stand up and be the the king. And he's going to do some good things before he fails. He's actually going to lead for a long time. And even as Saul is being confirmed, Samuel is still pleading with the people. He's talking to the people. He's, you've, made a, you, you've sinned here. You've made a mistake. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12, he, he is discussing with the, this with them. And God even confirms the idea that they've made a mistake by sending torrential bad weather right during the middle of harvest. Notice in 1 Samuel 19, because the people, they're not all bad. They want to do what's right. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die, for we've added to all of our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. So Samuel said to the people, Do not fear, you've committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Then you get to verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you you still do wickedly, both you and your king, will be swept away. So I love the message of renewal. Yes, you made a mistake. Yes, you did wrong. But, but when you repent, God is there. And when you're ready to serve Him, He'll take care of you. Fear Him. Fear Him. Fear Him. As we finish up this morning, my question for us to think about as we conclude is, what if we could more peacefully, and when I say that, I'm talking about internal peace. What if we could be internally at peace with the idea that I am going to do my very best to embrace what God wants for me? And if I could more peacefully embrace the idea of internalizing what God wants for me, would that cause me to be less tempted to want to look like the world? I mean, think about it. What does God say about who we are as His children? And as we finish, I want to take you back to one other familiar place in Scripture, words that you've probably heard time and time again. I know you've heard me mention these words, but they're so powerful in 1 Peter chapter 2 because God there in the Scripture, He's taking time through Peter's pen to remind us of who we are. He says in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Have you ever had anybody, maybe somebody older than you that kind of took an interest in you and maybe mentored you along or showed you the way? I mean, how valuable was it when somebody took some ownership in in helping you be better? We love people who invest into us 
And Peter's saying, you are a people for God's own possession. But notice there in the text, it's not just about being these kinds of people. God makes us and He calls us and He tells us that we are these people, but it is for a reason. He says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He didn't call us to conform to the world. He called us so that we can proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness where a lot of people still are. The idea that we've got a message to proclaim that they don't have to stay in the dark, that they can come to the light. He tells us who we are because He's given us work to do. That's why in the text He's going to go on and say, Beloved, I urge you in verse 11 as aliens and strangers... See, when you're an alien and a stranger in a place, you don't conform to the place you are because you don't belong there. And he's reminding us that in one sense, we don't belong. And I wonder how much better it could have been for Israel from time to time could they have stopped and done a better job of remembering who they were. And see, I think this discussion is very, very important right now because here we are, it's Thanksgiving week. We're counting our blessings. We're thinking about being more mindful than ever about what is it that I'm thankful for? And what if Israel had been showing gratitude rather than looking and and contemplating greener grass that really wasn't greener. See, we've said it before, but gratitude, when I stop to be thankful, if I'm thankful, I'm placing a spotlight on the giver of the gift. And if Israel had stopped to be thankful, they'd have been thinking about God at that point. See, they didn't, and it took them down the road of demanding something that would allow them to look like the world, but really wouldn't bless them the way God could bless them. As my take on it is this, if you and I, if today in 2015, if we can embrace who we are according to God's definition, being conformed to this world's model should be much less important to us, much less tempting to us. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, that ought to be a daily rallying cry for us as we live our lives here. And we've got to remember that, hey, an aspect of me offering up my life to God as a living sacrifice, that means that my life probably won't and probably shouldn't look exactly like what I see all around me in the world. In fact, as we do better, as I do better and you do better, as we do better at offering up our lives as living sacrifices, hopefully people are going to see something in us. Hopefully they're going to see the sun in us. The idea that they're going to see something that they'd like to have. Are you offering up your life as a living sacrifice today? See, I know that most of the time that's our goal. And I want to encourage all of us to keep on keeping on in that. Even on those days when it's hard, we've got to hang in there and continue to live that out. Why? The world needs to see it. It's part of our purpose. Why? God deserves it. He's invested in us heavily. Why? It'll be worth it. If I can have long-term thinking and avoid conforming right now, the long-term of, of, of living transformed, allowing Him to renew my mind, it's, it's heaven with Him forever. I've been reading a biography about the life of Walt Disney. 
And, and as I've gone through that and I'm just about done, one of the things that you see in that book over and over and over again is he was a man with big ideas. And he would not allow people to conform his thinking in such a way that it would be very, very limited. In other words, he always had ideas and the experts and the people that were trying to talk to him, they would always be talking to him about why his idea wouldn't work and why his idea couldn't happen and why there was just no way that it made sense. But he wouldn't conform to that. And had he listened to them, there wouldn't be a Disneyland. There sure wouldn't be a Disney World. And, and from the book, one way to illustrate the power of his inability to be dragged down by conforming to a bad idea, you've probably been to Epcot, maybe. And it is nothing like what he dreamed about it being. And the reason Epcot ended up being nothing like he wanted it to be is because he died before he could bring that dream to fruition. He actually intended people to live in that community. And it didn't happen because once he was gone, there were other voices. He transformed entertainment by not conforming. God transforms us, but we've got to continually be willing to say no to the world. And so today, as Bradley leads us in the song that's been selected, if we can help you in your obedience, if you're ready to allow God to transform your life into what He wants it to be, maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ today, maybe in your walk you're just ready for a new start, maybe you've conformed for too long, even though you, you know, hey, I've been singing He's my King, but I haven't been living like it. If that's where you are today, the beauty of God, just like in the Old Testament, when we're ready to start over, He's there for us. And so if we can pray for you today, let that be known while we stand and while we sing.